Oh, How the Tables Have Turned. That's the title of our message this morning from Mark chapter 2. We're going to be finishing chapter 2 today. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're going to make it all the way to the end this morning. We're going to look at bits and pieces of three different stories. But oh, how the tables have turned. Now, I was going to call this message three questions, but I was like, eh, it's not fancy enough. And then I was going to call it, oh, the turntables. But I didn't think anybody in here would get that joke because you all don't watch The Office because you all are not yet as sophisticated as I. <clears throat> Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, walks into the office and he's wanting to demonstrate that the tables had in fact turned in that office. But Michael Scott, like some that you all know, has a tendency to mess up idioms. And so he walks in proud and he says, Oh, how the turntables... And everyone look at him, looks, they all look at him and they're like, you are the dumbest man we have ever seen in our lives. But in fact, the tables had turned and life had changed for Michael Scott. This morning, we're going to be looking at three different stories at how the tables are turning on those who had been uh, the Pharisees and the religious elite at that time. We're going to see how Jesus is kind of flipping things on their head. And, and we remember this from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount. He's often doing this table turning. Uh, and I don't mean that literally. Now, we also know that Jesus literally turned tables, right, in the temple when they were doing money changing in the temples, uh, in the temple. But in this case, we're talking about a metaphor where Jesus is flipping what we used to know on its head and rerouting it so that it fits within how he fulfills the law, how he, how he is the representative and the, the inauguration of this new covenant. And so we're going to see how the tables have turned. And what we see is, is that when tables do get turned on individuals who have been in power or at least have had a certain level of comfort in their current situation, that that can kind of cause some grief, some frustration, even anger. Uh, towards those individuals, especially if you end up uh, taking some power away from those individuals. And we talked about that a little bit last week, is that who has the power to forgive sins? Well, that's Christ. And the Pharisees know that only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they're like, what are you doing? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, to prove that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to make this person, this paralytic, I'm going to have him stand up and walk. And that's exactly what he does, because the same authority that comes with healing a paralytic goes into saving our sins. This morning, we're going to look at the following passages at how Jesus is turning the tables. Now, you all know, many of you all know, that my job has changed here recently, not here at the church, but in my secular job. And my, my job has changed, and, and I'm now taking a program that uh, has been around for a while, but it has it, there's been several issues with the program. A lot of trouble has gone on. There's been some, uh, some compliance issues, some things, some organizational issues. And so they have allowed me to lead this new program and to basically get it kind of straightened out so it is compliant and so it's successful. And when you take over a pro, and I've done this before, I've done this in other areas, 
of life and in my career uh, where I've had to take a program or, or an organization that wasn't quite going in the right direction. I've had to kind of reorganize that. Sometimes we, we say that we're firemen, that we're putting out fires, if you will, because uh, honestly, for the last eight weeks, that's kind of what it has felt like I've been doing, putting out these little bitty fires. And one of these days, I'll get to actually where I get to develop the program, right? But in the midst of that, some changes have had to have been made in that program. Those changes, some of them are philosophical, and some of them are practical. And many of those changes have been welcomed by the majority of the individuals that I'm working with. They saw the issues, and they knew they needed course correction, and so they were thankful that somebody was coming in and kind of course correcting those issues. But every now and then, you'll get that one stinker, right? Or two stinkers, or four or five, right? They liked the status quo. They were comfortable in that, right? It gave them some comfort. It gave them freedom. And even though they weren't necessarily in compliance, necessarily were following the rules, it allowed them to do what they wanted when they wanted, and they just liked that, right? They didn't care if it was breaking the rules, per se, as long as they were happy. And so when some fella some new guy comes in and says, the tables are turning. We're doing something different. We're course correcting. Well, that can cause some problems. And that's where you need somebody who is diplomatic and who won't throw their cell phone through the wall at that time. And so one of these days they'll find somebody like that. But anyway, that's another story altogether. But the tables are turning, and we're going to see that in Mark chapter 2. And here we go. We're going to, be in start, we're going to start in uh, Mark chapter 13. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to read through each section, and I'm going to explain what's going on here and how Christ, with his role as the bringer of the new covenant, is changing, is turning the tables on the religious elite. So join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for all that you've accomplished on our behalf, Father. We thank you for sending your Son uh, to die on the cross for us. And we thank you... That you are that that you are good, and that you are uh, that you have liberated us from sin. You have liberated us from the chains that can find us, Lord. And now that we have now we have this freedom in Christ, and I'm so grateful for that. And Lord, I just ask that you would that you would bless us uh, during this time that we're reading your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's jump into chapter, thir- uh, chapter 2, verses 13. We're going to begin with verses 13 through 17. And all three of these little stories that I'm getting ready to read, you will recognize. You'll recognize them, but we're going to talk about them in a little bit of a new light. It says in verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And, he pa- and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to them, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who would follow him. Oh, this Jesus, he's hanging with a rowdy crowd. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So you have Jesus. He's called Levi to follow him. And now Jesus is going to his home, and apparently Levi hangs with a pretty rough crowd. It's like hanging with a bunch of Louisville fans. And, um, and so he, I, every time I'm going to do it, Toya, every single time. And so anyway, you're, although now I get, yeah, I know it, I know it. Actually, these days we could say St. Peter's fans, right? Is that what it is? Oh my goodness, it just broke all of our hearts. And so anyway, Jesus is hanging out with all this, this rough crowd, these tax collectors. Now just so, if anybody wasn't aware... All right. Now, none of us want to hang out with a tax collector. All right. We would not invite an IRS agent to sit at our booth at a, at a restaurant at all, ever, because we're afraid we're going to get audited. All right. But in this day, they were even more afraid because it was common for tax collectors to take more than their share. They were taking their tips, if you will, and pocketing them, right? So they would take what was owed to Caesar, and then they would take what they felt was owed to themselves, and they would pocket. And so they were often reviled in the culture. And Jesus is hanging out with these folks. And this idea that he's reclining. So remember, they didn't sit in chairs, all right? The chair had not been invented yet. Now, that's probably not true, but they didn't sit in them in this culture. They sat on the floor, either on pillows or some sort of cushion, and the table was lower, and they were reclining, meaning they were comfortable. They were really enjoying themselves, right? And so Jesus is sitting there with tax collectors, and all those scribes of the Pharisees, they'd been trained well. You don't sit with tax collectors. We do not associate with sinners. We do not associate with the unclean. We have to associate with the righteous. Those are the people that we want to hang out with, right? You see, there's a rigidity in the pharisaical teachings. There was a rigidity. There was this elitism. There was, I'm not going to hang with you because you are not good enough. I mean, that's really what they're saying. You're not good enough. I'm going to hang with them. They, they, they grab their, their jacket, their coat jacket like this, and they kind of tug it, and they say, I'm only going to hang with UK fans. Just kind of pull those tassels, right? And that's what the Pharisees would do. There was rigidity in there. They had no concept of the freedom that is in Christ. They had no concept of the freedom that comes with salvation from sin. They wanted to hang with the religious elite and they wanted to shun all those who were around. And so Jesus is now going to turn the tables on them, right? And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Healthy people don't go to the doctor typically. Now, you may go to the doctor once a year just to make sure that you're healthy, right? We call that a physical or a checkup or something like that. But if you're like me, you don't even do that, right? You wait until you're like, you know, you know, sort of like dying, right? Before you go, oh my goodness, I have 14 kidney stones. I better go to the doctor, right? And so that's what we do. So physicians don't treat healthy people. They treat sick people. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I want you to listen to that. I came to call the righteous. I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the first question that we have to ask was, okay, he didn't come to call the righteous. Who are the righteous? Well, I tell you this. 
anybody who is reviling Jesus for sitting at the table with tax collectors and sinners, they themselves are not the righteous ones. They are sick. The truth is we are all sick. We are all in need of the physician. Folks, just like I had mentioned last week, when you look out into the world, you don't see, even on the most beautiful day, you still see brokenness. You still see pain. You still see struggle. You still see sin. It is a bit ridiculous, actually. Because what we're really talking about is the, is the sickness of sin that embodies all those who have not been saved. And even those who have been saved are impacted by sin. We are just not under the authority of sin anymore. But I want you to imagine a person who is ailing, someone who is sick, all right? And I brought up kidney stone. Let's just throw out the kidney stone. I've had a kidney stone, and I, 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 would, I would rather pretty much deal with anything other than a kidney stone. Peggy knows what a kidney stone is because Paul's had two or three of them. And I, folks, I'm just going to tell you, Paul Grimes is six foot eight and a half. We're going to give him that half inch there. I'm not going to mention the weight, but he's probably heavier than me because he's six foot eight and a half. But when you get that big of a man on the floor in the bathroom rolling around because of a little bitty stone in the kidney, that's painful. All right. But the ridiculousness of having sin in your life and not going to the one individual who can heal you of that sin is like Paul Grimes rolling on the floor with a kidney stone and not going to the doctor to have them fix it. I know that I'm sick, I know that I'm ailing, I know that I'm in pain, but I'm not going to go to the one individual who can heal me of that illness. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. We all have sin. We are all broken. And Christ says, repent and believe. Now, I'm confident on a human level. Now, here's the thing. You don't come to the Father without the Father calling you. That, that's just the truth, okay? That's what Scripture says. You come to the Father when the Father calls you, okay? But on a very human level, I want you to listen to me real quick. I believe one of the main reasons that people don't want to be Christians is because, now they say, some say, it's because, well, I've seen Christians, and if Christians actually, actually behaved like Jesus, then I would be a Christian. Oh, that's baloney. We don't worship Christians, we worship Christ, I know that Christians act crazy sometimes. I know they act like heathens sometimes. But I'm not worshiping them. I'm worshiping Jesus. But I believe the main reason that a lot of people don't want to come to Christ is because they believe that there are too many rules. That's it. There's too many rules. There, there, there's too much good behavior that I've got to do. It's too rigid. Folks, the rigidity is not in Christianity. The rigidity is in legalism of the Pharisees. That's where the rigidity is. There is freedom in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, as I've matured in Christ, I don't find there to be one single burden in following Christ. 
The burden is when I want to do my own thing and follow myself. But there is freedom in Christ. On Friday night, we went to go see a trumpet recital in Williamsburg. Drove two hours to see this young man play a trumpet. It was a senior recital, and it was great. I loved every minute of it. Um, it was fantastic. And, uh, and, and he, he loves playing jazz, right? Now, I told Jackson that we were going to go to see a jazz recital because that's actually what I thought it was, that they were going to be playing jazz. Now, I love jazz. And I told Jackson that we were going to go see jazz. I said, do you want to go see? And he's like, I don't like jazz. Now, he's nine years old. I don't know that nine-year-olds know what jazz is. I was like, why don't you like jazz? He said, they play too many notes. He said, there's too many notes. There's all over the place. He said, so, now Jackson's looking at me like, I didn't say that. You said that. Okay, so anyway, there, it's just all over the place with jazz. But see, I liken jazz music to Christianity, right? There's structure in jazz, but there's also freedom to explore that structure, right? There is freedom in Christ. And the Pharisees didn't like that because... If this newfound faith following Jesus allows us to sit with sinners and tax collectors, that's removing the power out of our hands. Because if we can't make the laws and if people aren't following them, then who are we? Jesus is turning the tables. Let's go to the next section. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples... Why, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now let me pause right there. Let me explain that. Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. He's imagining they're at a wedding, okay? Now let me dispel one mis misconception. It's not that Jesus never fasted. He was a good Jew in the sense that he followed the Mosaic law. And so like on the Day of Atonement, he would fast. On the appropriate festivals, on the appropriate days, he would fast. But what was happening is that the Pharisees, like they did, they would add extra regulations in there. And so they would commonly fast on other days during the week to show their extra religiosity, right? Look at me, I'm fasting, right? Look at me. And we know that there's trouble with that. Christ warned us, don't fast and let everybody see that you're hungry, all right? Fast in private. You're not doing this so everybody can see you, right? And so they're saying, what? you know, John's disciples fast on the correct days. The Pharisees' disciples fast on the correct days. Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? When you fast, it is also a sign, okay? There is a sign of, um, I don't want to say mourning, but there is a solemnness, as I've heard one commentator said, say, to, to fasting. There's a solemnness to it. It's, fasting is not necessarily a happy, happy joy. You're not fasting and, and like wanting to go celebrate and raise your hands while you're... While you're it's, it's a moment of contemplation. It's a, it's, a mo it's, a, it's a time of humility as you're fasting. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't fast when the bridegroom is there. When the bridegroom is there during the wedding, you don't refuse to eat. It's a time of celebration. The bridegroom is here. Spend your time with the bridegroom. Now's a time for joy. And he says there is going to be a time when the bridegroom is not here. And then you will fast. 
But for the moment, the bridegroom is here. Imagine this, that the disciples choose to fast on these alternate days and stuff other than appointed by the Mosaic law while Jesus is there. Folks, I'm just going to tell you that 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 would have changed the picture a little bit. It would have been more difficult for the disciples to follow Christ, to obey Christ, to listen to Christ, to do all that he asked them to do. And Jesus says, you don't need to fast on these alternate days. That's not the Mosaic law. Follow the Mosaic law. But fast when we're appointed to fast in those other days, that's all man's tradition. I'm here. Be with me during this time. Jesus is turning the tables on the Pharisees. But then he says this statement that is a little bit difficult to comprehend. And so I want to explain that this morning. It's, it's kind of curious. It's almost as if, like, why did he say this? Beginning in verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, you might think, well, is that like a metaphor? Well, it is, but it actually is a, is a pretty just practical statement, right? I mean, Miss Sue knows about this. If you, if you take an old garment that's already been shrunk, right, and you take a new patch and put it on a hole on that old garment, but that new patch has not been shrunk, when you sew that new patch in there, what's going to happen? When it shrinks, it's going to tear the garment, and you're going to have a bigger mess on your hands. She fixed the hem in my pants the other day, and I wore them, and I celebrated Sue when I wore those pants. She knows about holes in pants. And then he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's the same principle. If you put fresh wine in an old wineskin, well, that fresh wine is still producing gases. All right, there's still gas, all right, and those old wineskins are going to split and tear, and you're going to ruin the wine. And by the way, wine, you just didn't go down to Sam's Club and buy a big box of wine. <laughs> box of wine, you can see what I think about, right? Okay, and so anyway, I mean, that's, that's where we're at, right? It's going to destroy it. You put new wine in new wineskins so that the wineskin can handle the new wine. Now, what does this mean? Why is Jesus saying this? He is saying we are turning the tables. The old wineskins and the old shrunken garments with the holes in them, that is the old covenant. That's the old covenant. And Jesus is saying, I am bringing you a new patch and new fresh wine. So you need to be ready. Because the two may, I have come to, with me, the old covenant is now fulfilled. Something new is ready. They may not necessarily fit together now, okay? I have fulfilled the old covenant. Now we're moving on into the new covenant. So forget your traditions. Forget your ways, okay? That's the old tradition. Now we're going with the new tradition. The new covenant has come. Don't sew that new patch on old garments. They will tear. They don't work. See, the Pharisees wanted to maintain the rigor of their legalism. And Jesus says, your legalism does not fit with my freedom. 
So get your head on straight. And then the third section, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what were they doing that was not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, what they were doing was work. That's what the Pharisees were saying, that they were doing work. Now, the Mosaic Law actually says you can pick the heads of grain to eat. Okay, You can do that. Gleaning fields... All right, so gleaning, what that is, they've harvested all the grain, but there's some that's left, and so there would be gleaning that would happen to allow them to get the remainders of the wheat, right, for those who were hungry. So they were plucking the heads of the grain off on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were saying, you can't do work on the Sabbath. There is no work on the Sabbath. You have to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And if you are working, you are not keeping it holy. And in fact, if you... If, if you broke the Sabbath law, you could be put to death. You could be put to death. So the Pharisees were very upset about this. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? Now, folks, these guys were just going through a field. David, King David, is going into the house of God, the temple, if you will, okay? Going into the house of God. In the time of Abinathar, Abathar, sorry, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now the disciples were just picking heads of grain. David goes in and eats the choicest of breads that was meant for the priests for worship. He said, didn't you hear about David? You all aren't knocking David. You aren't criticizing King David. You're criticizing me though, right? And by the way, Jesus is not criticizing King David. What Jesus is saying is David was right. David had the heart of the Sabbath, or he had the meaning of the Sabbath at heart. And then he says this, and he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, folks, that is a divine claim. Jesus is saying when he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am God. That's what Jesus is saying here. But with this statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, What he means is that the Sabbath was not created so that we could have another rule to follow. The Sabbath was created for man that we might be blessed, that we might worship, that we might exalt. God wanted us to honor the Sabbath so we would have that moment of blessing. Yet at the same time, if your oxen is in a ditch... Or, in, or if, if the ox is in a ditch, or if you are starving, God never meant for the Sabbath to be, a, to, to be a provision that would prevent individuals from flourishing, from thriving. God does not say, 
you may not work on the Sabbath. I don't care if you starve to death. You're not going to work on the Sabbath. He says, eat, thrive. The Sabbath was created to help you thrive under the glory, under the banner of Christ. That's what the Sabbath was created for. We keep the Sabbath so that we might honor the Lord. It was not created just so that we would have this rigidity. The reason why there was a law against working on the Sabbath was because God knows the hearts of men. That we get so busy and so so fleshed out in what we are doing that we will completely set we we will we will not set aside any time to contemplate and to just be present with the Lord because we tend to be self-centered individuals. So he sets aside this Sabbath day so that we might rest, so that we might be blessed, so that we might contemplate all that the Lord has done. But if you are starving, eat. If your ox is in a ditch, that ox is your livelihood. Save the ox and then go to worship. Jesus is turning the tables on all the Pharisees. And what it comes down to, what it looks like, is that Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled that old covenant that you have been so rigid on. I fulfilled that old covenant. I am the new covenant. I am Christ. I am the Messiah. Follow me now. Disregard your traditions. Disregard your man-made rules. I have fulfilled the Mosaic law. Now believe in the gospel. Repent and believe and find freedom in that. There are many individuals that don't understand what freedom in Christ really entails. There are so many individuals that... that, that and, and, and I will say well-meaning, lovely Christians are burdened by their faith. They're burdened by their faith. And what I mean by that is that they are still living their life for Christ. They're living their life for Christ, but in a way, in a way that entails them following all these sets of rules to follow. Like I've got to check off all these rules. Christ did not come with a new rule book. Christ did not say repent, believe and start checking off these rules. He just said, repent and believe. He said, come follow me. Now, are we to live lives that are holy? Absolutely. Are we to live lives that look like Christ? Are we, are, are we, are, is our aim to model Christ in our lives? Yes. But he does not intend for us to be so burdened by laws and legalism that we forget to have joy in Christ. And that is one of the biggest differences between the Christians and the legalists and the Pharisees. I doubt there was a bit of joy in the single Pharisee. How could they? How could they find joy? But with Christ... There's joy and there's freedom from being liberated from sin. And I'll go back to jazz music. Sorry, Jackson. 
I like jazz. I like jazz because there's freedom in that. I hit a wrong note. That's all right. It was meant to be there. It's kind of like Bob Ross. You all watch Bob Ross paint with that nice fro? I have an action figure of Bob Ross in my, in my office. It's an act, I've not unboxed it because one day it's going to be worth half of what I paid for it. But I used to watch Bob Ross, and he would paint, and he would make a mistake, and, but he would say, there aren't any mistakes, right? He would just turn that little mistake into a different bush or into a tree, right? There was freedom in that, right? And you saw the joy that there was. I'll finish by saying this. Uh, when I uh, started with music, oh my goodness, like 23, 24 years ago now, and I started singing with you know, choirs and you know, special music you know, in traditional Southern Baptist churches, well, what did we do? We would get not a CD, we'd use cassette tapes, right? And if you needed to rewind them, you took a pencil in there and rewound it, right? That's what you did. Well, we'd use cassette tapes for our songs. And I hated it. I hated it. And I'll tell you why. Because when you put that CD in there, Crystal knows this about me. You put the CD or the cassette tape in there and you have the track of the song and you're singing to the track, what happens if you get off tempo? Or if you, get, if you miss your point coming in? Folks, I'm not fine. It's like if you're driving on the interstate and you miss your ramp. I ain't getting back on. Okay? I'm just, we're, I was supposed to go to Cincinnati. I'm just going to go to Florida. Okay? That's just what's going to happen. It's the same way in that song. If I miss my spot, I'm just going to sing a different song. All right? In a different key. I couldn't stand the rigidity. Now, some people thrive in that. I couldn't stand that rigidity. But when I started playing my own instrument, guitar, piano, whatever it might be, there was freedom in that. If I missed a note, if I missed where to come in, what did I do? Just find another place to come in. I know where I'm at. We are going to fail as Christians. We are going to stumble and fall as Christians. We are going to sin as Christians. But with Christ, you can always recover. Because of Christ, you can always recover. You can always get back on that ramp. You can always find the note that you were supposed to come in on. Christ has provided freedom for that. Which takes the burden off us. The Pharisees wanted us to maintain that burden, and Christ wants to set us free. And so follow Christ, repent and believe, and, and just follow Christ and enjoy Christ. Enjoy Him. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank You for all, all that You do. We thank You for the freedom that is in Christ. Father, help us to be more faithful. Help us to not sin. But when we do sin, help us to not be stuck in that, but simply repent and believe again in Christ. Father, I thank you for Jesus and how you turned the tables on those Pharisees. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Amen.